0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of the Way Eugene. Well, turn over in your Bibles, please, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we got them on the back shelf there. Man, you can go grab one. Keep it if you need it. Um, man, keep it if you don't need it and give it to someone else. That's a good plan, too and then uh, the basket's there for offering if, uh, if you'd like to give to the Lord financially. Um, but let me just say that, like you guys have been a huge blessing. Um, I, I, there are certain things that I say I don't like talking about. I don't like talking about politics. I don't talk, like talking about money, those kinds of things. But there's, there's a certain aspect on those things where it's right to talk about those things in the Lord and how God has blessed us. And I just want to say thank you. You guys have been incredibly faithful to the Lord in worshiping him with the give, gifts that you have given. And they've been a blessing for a lot of reasons um, to a lot of people. So that said, if you'd like to give, the basket's in the back there. Now, for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we jump in here today. We all want our life to mean something. I work with kids on a daily basis. And one of the things that we fight in our, our culture today is big dreamers, people who dream big have big goals, right? When you're really young, when you're a little kid, man, it, it seems like we're free to dream, we're free to just w- want the, the biggest goals in the world, right? When you're a little kid, what do you want to be? You want to be a fireman, you want to be a policeman, you want to be a soldier, you want to be an astronaut, right? And then you go into school and you start learning that you have to do advanced calculus to be an astronaut. <laughs> and you just go, I would die in space, like do this equation to figure out how to fix the air filter. No, we'll just die out here and we'll just float off into the sunset. Like, it ain't gonna happen. One of the things we struggle with today in our culture is kids who don't dream big. They haven't been taught, they haven't been inspired to think like, I want my life to mean something. I want there to be a purpose for my existence here. You know, one of the things we as Christians have the advantage of Simply in our expression of faith, in believing upon Jesus, is the moment that we believe upon Jesus, our life immediately means something. Now, it meant something even before we were saved, because God created us, and he desires us to be in relationship with him. But when we understand our purpose, we understand what we were made for and created for, all of a sudden, it gives us this view of the world where it just sort of unfolds in front of us. And it's sort of like the world is our oyster at that point where we just go reach out and grab it. God has called you to such big things and beautiful things. Now, those big, beautiful things don't always include being astronauts or movie stars or somebody famous. Oftentimes, the big, beautiful things that God has called us to is to be a good friend to someone who needs a friend is to be a faithful husband and wife, a parent who loves their children and disciples them in the ways of the Lord, someone who comes and is a part of the active body of Christ. Those big, beautiful things that God calls us to, we get that identity when we become Christians. Now, there's something we're gonna talk about today in the word that is all over the Bible and oftentimes gets misinterpreted or misunderstood or is perhaps simply a fearful thing to consider and it's the idea of judgment the bible talks about a day of judgment where all people will stand before the lord And even for someone right now in their life who perhaps doesn't have big goals for their life, doesn't dream big, isn't necessarily considering how can my life mean something in the end. When we all find ourselves standing before the Lord on that day of judgment, in that moment, we are going to want our life to have meant something, to have stood for something. I shared this quote on Wednesday night, and I'll repeat it for those who haven't heard it, but it says this. You can have a saved soul and still have a wasted life. You can have a saved soul. You could believe in Jesus, have your sins forgiven. And yet the life that you have, what you've been called into in Christ, you can waste that. So that when you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, he will welcome you into his kingdom But there's somehow going to be this embarrassment, this regret of like, wow, I was given this gift of this life in Christ, this new identity, and I just wasted it. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul speaks about this day of judgment very specifically. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then because of this statement, Paul says in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There is a fear even for Christians in the judgment of the Lord. Now, judgment is, is a tough subject. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, people who are not believers, who hear of Christians defining what is holy and what is right and what is good, feeling as though we are judging them, telling them that they're bad people because they don't believe the same thing that we believe. Well, all we can say in answer to that is that the Bible is full of references to this judgment. Now, let's define it for for, for our purposes today. There appears to be two judgments specifically in Scripture. If you mark down Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, would appear to be a reference to what's called the great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment of God according to the works of all people in regard to salvation. The great white throne judgment is where God opens up these books and looks at the record of each person's life, and what he's looking for in the record of that person's life is, did that person place their faith upon Jesus for salvation, or did they reject the salvation that was offered by Jesus' death and resurrection? That's the great white throne judgment. And here's the beauty of that one. That's the fearful one, right? That's the one that says, line up, everybody. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. That's the great white throne judgment. That's the one that people don't like to talk about in church nowadays. That's the one where unbelievers go, you Christians are such, such bigots. You guys, who are you to say who's right and who's wrong? We're not. God is. And God tells us that there's going to be this judgment, that we're going to stand before him and give an account For our lives. Now, here's the cool thing about us as followers of Christians. We feel that fear of the Lord of judgment, but here's the other part that we know with confidence we can stand in that if we have believed upon Jesus as our salvation, we're not fearful of that judgment. We are not afraid of the judgment of God because we have, the scripture says, an advocate who stands in our place. So that when God looks at me and opens up the books and goes, Luke, why did they have to bring 10 volumes of your sin in front of me? Like, why are there such big books with your sins listed? I was a failure, Lord. I'm sorry. If it was left to me, it would be get in the front of the line to hell, all right? Because that's where you belong. But because scripture says that I have an advocate, I have Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins specifically, at that place of judgment, Jesus steps in and goes, Father, This one's mine. My blood covers him. It washes him clean of his sin. And the father says to my amazement and everyone else's (laughs) amazement, Lukeon, enter in my good and faithful servant. Me? Me? No, I'm not good or faithful, but Jesus is. And so because Jesus is my advocate at that great white throne, I don't fear that judgment we do this thing at school. Teachers have been losing their mind. Where, um, because of the distance learning and the challenges that have been uh, inst- that have sort of come up because of doing school online, all that kind of stuff, the school district said that at the high school level, we're going to set a floor for grading. Right, the ceiling is an A, hundred percent, right? But the floor, this is where all kids start, is fifty percent. There's no zeros. So 50%. So all they have to do to pass the class is make up the 10% difference between 50 and 60% because a D is passing. Yeah, everybody's shaking their head going, this is bonkers. Really? This is dumb. Yeah, you're right. It is. <laughs> but it's a good picture of our judgment. Our minimum floor as Christians is salvation. That's the, that's the bottom. We, don't, we can't get judged lower than a passing grade. That's our, that's our minimum grade, is salvation when we believe upon Jesus. The, the, the truth is, it's not fair, but it's right in the Lord. It's what he has allowed us to experience. Now, that's the first type of judgment, the great white throne judgment, where if you haven't believed upon Jesus for salvation, you should be fearful of the Lord because of the consequences eternally. Separation from the love and the grace of God if you have not believed upon Jesus. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, refers to this second type of judgment. Look again. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This would appear to be a different judgment than the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of time in terms of deciding who goes to heaven for eternity and who is separated from the Lord in hell for eternity. This, would be a ju- this judgment that Paul's talking about would appear to be a judgment only for believers, for those who have placed their faith upon Jesus Christ for salvation. And this is the judgment that Jesus makes of our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that says, what did you do with the life that I gave you? You're going to have to answer for the things that you've done, whether good or bad, meaning whether the intention of your heart was good or the intention of your heart was bad. See, the thing is, is that people can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And God will allow that. He'll still use that for the glory of his grace and his kingdom. And yet it reflects poorly on us if our hearts are not right in the Lord. Paul's already talked about this to the Corinthians. Mark down, don't turn there, but mark down 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse five, Paul says this, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This accords with that judgment seat of Christ. Where Paul tells the church, listen, on the outside, you could look like you're doing all the right things. But when Jesus comes, he's actually going to judge your heart and find out why you did what you did. Remember, Jesus' standards are so much higher than simple laws. The Old Testament was was God gave laws to his people to follow, which if they were able to follow all 613 of them perfectly, then they could have been considered righteous. But there was no way for anybody to complete that, to fulfill that type of perfection. And so when Jesus comes, he says, the law, I fulfilled the law. So you don't have to worry about the law in the sense of completing all of those uh, uh, tasks in the law. Simply believe upon me, take my life for your life. And then you'll be considered righteous in God's sight. But here's the thing. What Paul is illuminating for us is to say, listen, not only is it the belief of Jesus, but it's the intent of our heart of why we're following after him that has to be judged by Jesus. And and other other studies that we can do will reveal to us what is the consequence or the result of our hearts and the purpose of our lives. There are rewards to be won. There are, Scripture talks about crowns that we can receive. But what we know is that that that's not the purpose, that those crowns and those gifts and all those glorious things that we read about in Scripture that are awarded to us as faithful servants of Jesus are simply for us to be able to worship him in heaven. That's the purpose of it. So in a very real way, Judgment is an issue for us as followers of Jesus. Not eternal life judgment, but the purpose of our life judgment. Mark down 1 Peter chapter 4. I've got a number of scriptures this morning, and I'll make my way through them as expediently as I can. But I think it's important for us to sort of internalize this because, again, judgment isn't something we talk about a lot in church. In fact, most of the time, we want to talk about God's grace, which is true and good. But oftentimes, we as followers of Jesus simply want to rest on that grace and think nothing else matters. I don't have to worry about what I think, do, say, or how I act. And yet, the Lord tells us that there is a judgment of those things. So mark down 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter explains from real life experience that we as followers of Jesus are gonna experience trials and persecution and tribulation. We're gonna go through hard things. But Peter's encouragement in that is that in those hard moments, those weak moments, don't let it lead you to a place where you suffer on account of sin as a murderer or a meddler, right? Like, don't sin, just because you've been under persecution. But rather, he says, look at it again. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The indication being that if you're suffering, praise the Lord for that suffering. Let that suffering lead you to Jesus. Let it lead you to faithfulness in the Lord, not to let down your guard and allow sin to have its way with you. And so Peter says, powerfully, Judgment begins in the house of God. We need to faithfully and obediently acknowledge our sin before the Lord so that we take hold of the justification that is ours in Christ. We stand before the Lord on the day of judgment free and clean and clear. But what the indication is of scripture is that we should act like that now. If we've been saved, we should act like it. We should allow our lives to be examples of Christ in all things. And Peter says that begins here in the house of God. This is where we come to understand that our lives have fallen short. And and yes, we're saved, but we don't want to waste our lives. So we come and we say, Lord, I've failed in these ways. Forgive me. Help me to understand how to, how, to, how to not give in to sin when I'm going through hard seasons and hard times. Help me not turn away from you and the example you've given me when, when I have these temptations in front of me to run off and do sinful things. Hebrews chapter 10, mark it down, I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says this. the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, Hebrews ten thirty-one. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That phrase became the foundation of one of the greatest sermons ever recorded in history. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it was the impetus. It was the thing that sparked the great awakening in the early part of America's history. To say, listen, we cannot allow ourselves to slip into this comfortableness of accepting sin in our lives. We have to not only extol and preach the grace of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, but we also need to instruct ourselves in where we draw the line and say, this is not right for us to accept sinful behavior and such is the New Testament, letters to churches, correcting them on their behavior, correcting them on what they accepted in regard to sin versus righteousness. We should desire to be followers of Jesus, to sin less, to seek holiness, to imitate the righteousness of even those saints in Scripture that we've seen that are given to us. Read through Hebrews 11. It's, it's referred to as the hall of faith. All these who, although their lives were imperfect, they trusted in the Lord and they strove after the things of God, even in their sin, repenting of those things. And so the, the reality is, is when we come to the table of communion week by week, it's for the purpose of us not just checking it off the list and taking a piece of bread and a cup of juice. It's for the purpose that we would check our hearts before the Lord and Repent of the things that were not godly with specificity, like to be specific and go, Lord, where have I failed this week? Oh my goodness, yeah. There's that issue in my head. There's that issue in my heart. There's that behavior that keeps repeating itself. Lord, forgive me. I I take the body and blood of Christ to remember that I am free from those sins. Now, in reference to those examples that we have in scripture, I want to give you just three references of people that if you wanted to go and study them and look at them, they're good studies to do. We want our lives to mean something. Our lives here are lived within the context of Oregon and the United States of America. The example that we see throughout Scripture, these three in particular that I want to show you, they are men who, in the accounting of their lives, we really do see faithfulness to the Lord. We don't see a lot of sin present, if at all, in their lives. But we see all of them do something that I think we can learn from today. Mark down Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 1. Those are the three scriptural references that I'll give you that you can go and study on your own. Go look at those things on your own. Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 1. But I'm going to read to you from Ezra chapter 9 and just show you an example of what I mean. God had instructed his people not to Intermarry with other nations that they were to stay within their own group and remain pure and that if, the, if someone wanted to join them they could, they could join the nation of Israel through a process of acknowledging God as the Lord and going through a baptismal rite they could join the nation of Israel but as for those who were in, in the nation they weren't to marry out, they weren't to marry pagan peoples and they had done this and so Ezra he grieves over the sin of his people And in Nehemiah chapter two, it says, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost, meaning the leaders who were supposed to be teaching what was right and wrong, they were the ones who were showing the example of sinfulness. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. When we see sin in our lives, specifically when we see sin in the church, do we pull our hair out? Are we grieved in such a way that we just sit down and just go, Lord, what is, what is going on? Ezra, Ezra did. He said, I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the Lord God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the, return, of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for.'" our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Take note, Ezra wasn't guilty of any of these sins. He wasn't guilty of intermarrying. He wasn't guilty of approving that behavior. And yet what he says is, Lord, our sins have built up. He takes ownership in a way that if it was left to me, I would go, Fry them, God. Toast them. All the ones who are just disobedient and not doing the right things, get rid of them, man. Me and my camp, we're good. We're all right. To the best of our knowledge, tell us where we're missing it and we'll, we'll repent. But we're good. Go ahead and take the rest of them. No, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel all provide the example of men who stood what we call in the gap. In the places where the nation, where God's people were not righteous they stood in the way and said, God, we repent on behalf of the nation. We repent in such a way, God, that, that we pray that you would bless our people. Forgive us of our iniquity and our sins. There's another story that I, I frequently turn to as an encouragement. Mark down Second Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, the completion and the dedication of Solomon's temple. David, his father, wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple for God to be worshipped in one place, but because he was a man who, Scripture says, was bloody, he was guilty of murder, God said, you cannot be the one to complete my house. You can't build my house for me. And so it was left to David's son Solomon to complete the building of the temple. And it says in Second Chronicles 7, verse, pardon me, What? I apologize, 2 Chronicles, thank you. 2 Chronicles, Old Testament, my, my bad. That's what happens when you have like 25 scriptures to refer to. Second Chronicles chapter 7, my apologies. The completion of Solomon's temple, it says thus, in verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a tough one. We like the part about God turning away from his wrath and healing the land. We like that part, but here's the part that we struggle with perhaps is that God sometimes sends the pestilence. He's the one that oftentimes withholds rain and blessing. We all look back at 2020 and just go, that stunk. That was horrible. And yet perhaps God sent 2020 very specifically and all of the things that took place that were so hard to deal with and hard to watch and caused us to grieve in so many ways. Perhaps God sent the events of 2020 for us to do what? To repent, to turn back to him, to cry out and to, to repent of our sins, to intercede on behalf of our nation, to intercede on behalf of people that we know need to turn back to the Lord need to be reconciled to Jesus. The Father says, if you do this, if you do this, if you pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, I think a lot of us like the idea of praying and just believing that God will forgive us because he does, but we miss that second part, turning from our wicked ways, and we spend a lot of time justifying the sins in our life. It's a dangerous business. And oftentimes, why we don't see blessing in our life, why we don't see God's faithfulness exhibited in powerful ways, I think, again, starts in the house of God. Have we repented? have, have we changed our wicked ways? Are we pursuing Jesus? And these are examples, these Old Testament examples of intercession and judgment. They highlight the seriousness of the issue of Sin. Now, I've said in the past often that Christians, followers of Jesus, should be known more for what they are in support of rather than what they are against. We are in support of believing in Jesus. We are in support of people's lives being saved and renewed and healed. I believe we as Christians need to be known for the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but let me clarify that. Within the church within our fellowship as believers in Jesus. We need to unite around Jesus and his example both for our worship and our devotion, but also for our behavior. We need to hold ourselves accountable to to push sin away, to identify and call out sin for what it is, and then look to Jesus and go, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I take your life for my own to behave and act in a way that will glorify you in a lost, deceived, and Christ rejecting world. I want to finish with, with two things. Number one, what are we going to be judged for when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? We've already said if you're a believer in Jesus, the great white throne, no fear. You have Jesus as your advocate. We are going to spend eternity with him. But what are we going to answer for when we stand before Jesus? When he judges us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, you know, is it, is it how many times I cussed? Is it how many times I looked at something inappropriate on the internet? Is it how many times I thought bad thoughts about someone on the freeway? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah, possibly. There's no record of that in scripture because they didn't have freeways back then. They didn't have the internet back then, right? And so it's sort of hard to judge those things other than to say, yeah, if they're not godly, if they're not Christ-like, they're going to be judged. But here's what we do here in scripture. Three things specifically that we are going to be judged on. Mark down Matthew chapter 3. Don't worry about turning there. I'm going to just give you the scriptural references and make reference to it so we can make our way through. But what are we going to be judged for? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, that we are going to be judged for stray words that we say. Look at what it says in, in, in chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. What does this tell us? That the flippant little comments that we make, the the little words that we say in criticism of other people, the words that we let fall that aren't praiseworthy, those are going to be judged on the day of Christ. Christ. And so when we consider our speech, what we say, what we should be speaking is hopefully what's in our hearts. Praise. Praise that God has saved us through Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus, love for neighbor. Like these are the things that should be coming out of our mouth so that even when we're confronted with a situation where we want to drop some language that's just like this expresses how I'm feeling, hopefully what's in our heart overcomes that in such a way that we don't allow those stray words to fall out of our mouth because they're going to be judged. And so Jesus tells us that that every careless word that we speak is going to be judged. But on the flip side of that, every word every praiseworthy word, every good word that comes out of our mouth is also going to be judged on our account. A couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus continues talking about these types of judgment. He says in Matthew 15 verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. Have you ever been around someone who says that they're a Christian and yet their mouth gives you every evidence that they are not? Oh, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Yes. F and this, S that, A this, B that. Oh, I'm a Christian. No, I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm just forgiven. I'm a forgiven Christian. Well, Jesus would say that that's an evidence that perhaps what's in your heart is not right. And it's not necessarily the words coming out of your mouth that defiles you, but the root of why you're saying those words, what's in your heart that defiles you. And so he goes on in Matthew 15, verse 19 and says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is making a distinction between legal activity and what's actually going on in our hearts. The sinful thoughts of our hearts are going to be judged. And finally, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this very clear to us, and it's a frightful thought, and it's one that is absolutely relevant to us in our culture. Where we've grown as the church into a, a, an entity, a place where we want people to feel comfortable, we want to attract people, we want to fill up the room, and, and we end up pulling punches to do it we end up coming to a place where where we accept sinful behavior and even unfortunately begin to copy behaviors that are worldly that don't glorify God and we try and repackage them and say no 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 we'll redeem this for the lord when it's perhaps something that is unredeemable because of the root of of the heart of it and so here's what paul says in romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 28 in regard to the difference between those who are believers and those who are not. Romans 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Amen, Paul. We can get behind that. Again, burn them all. Send them to hell. We like that idea. Get rid of all the bad people. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There are a lot of people who, even within the fellowship of the church, give approval to sinful things by not calling them out for what they are. By not confessing to the Lord, Lord, we've sinned, look at our country, look at all the things that we've allowed to become normal that are not normal that are not healthy and not good. I illuminated a bunch of them on Wednesday night. You can go back and listen, and I talked about them specifically. But Paul tells us that, that if we are people who, not not just sin, like of course they're going to be judged, but, but if we're people who approve of others' sin, we're going to be judged in the same way that they are. There's a revival that needs to take place within the church and it's not the type of revival that perhaps we think about from the 40s and 50s and 60s where there's big tents and everybody's jumping up and down and excited and all these kinds of things. We can use that kind of revival too but the revival that we need within the church is to stop pointing fingers at everybody else and start taking responsibility for repenting of sin within the body of Christ. Not just sins that have been committed but sins that we have accepted or approved of. Now, that's that's a hard way to, to sort of end the discussion and end the talk. And so I do want to leave us with, with an understanding of how God's grace works within this idea and concept of judgment. Mark down the last scripture for the day, I promise you. First John. First John First John chapter three, here's what he says in verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness since sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him, meaning Jesus, there is no sin. No one abides in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If you don't get that last part in there, then it's a condemnation to our hearts that would leave us depressed and despondent. But what we have to focus on is the fact that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why when we place our faith in him and receive his life as ours, that's why we look to our behavior and our thoughts and our feelings and our activities and just go, I need to run for, run toward Jesus and away from sin. I need to look at the things in my life and stop making excuses for the television shows that I watch. Stop making excuses for the movies that I watch and go, it's okay, it's just art. It's part of the culture. God knows my heart. That's the part you need to be fearful of. That if in your heart you have said, it's okay for me to participate in sinful things, God's looking at that heart going, do you even love me? Do you believe that Jesus actually died on the cross to remove those sins from your life? First John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the way that we can leave this place today, not being depressed, not being beat down, not saying, Well, I'm never going back there. That guy just likes to tell me I'm a sinner. That may be true. I get a kick out of that for some reason. But I put myself at the front of the line and I say, we are sinners. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Not angry because we're bad boys and girls, but angry because God knows that sin hurts us. He knows that sin is not the plan that he created for us to have fellowship with him. And so he's provided a way for us to reject sin. To oppose the enemy, the devil, and things that are evil by pursuing righteousness, repenting of our sins, repenting of the sins of our nation, repenting of the sins of, of those who we desire to be drawn toward the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ.